For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. 95% of all laboratory animals are rodents. Over 100 million lab mice and rats are killed every year for science. According to the Smithsonian Institute, studies with rodents address everything from neurology and psychology to drugs and disease. Researchers have implanted electronics into mice brains to control their movements, repeatedly tested the addictive properties of cocaine, administered electric shocks, implanted human brains in mice skulls, and sent mice and rats scurrying through endless labyrinths of tests. NASA even keeps lab mice aboard the International Space Station for experiments in microgravity. Some results from tests performed on mice have led to incredible success in treating humans, some have not. But did you know that the modern lab mouse is actually descended from a very specific and very weird mouse species called, I kid you not, the fancy mouse? Fancy Fancy mice were first bred in England in the 17th century by crossing Japanese specimens with common English house mice. This produced docile individuals that could easily be kept as pets, and by the late 1800s, Britishers had started to breed these mice for different traits. Silky hair or curly hair, silver coats or spotted coats, and on and on. In 1895, the English National Mouse Club was founded, and the first mouse show, like a dog show, but for mice, was held that year. Incidentally, these shows continue to this day. If you're interested, you can join the American Fancy Rat and Mouse Association, or AFRUMA, and start showing mice against other breeders. Fancy that. 
When the modern study of animal genetics got going in the early 20th century, scientists were looking around for an organism to study other than the peas that Gregor Mendel used to demonstrate heredity. The fancy mouse, a docile mammal that people had bred for specific traits for decades, was a natural choice. Fancy mice in the lab were then systematically inbred to give them uniform genomes. That makes lab mice easy to study, but it means they are about as similar to a wild meadow jumping mouse as a house cat is to a tiger. This week, we've got the wild meadow jumping mouse, stream access, archaeology, and animal cruelty. But first I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was pretty wild. I fished for king salmon and striper on the Sacramento River in California. It was hot, about 110 degrees, but the river temperature on the upper sack is mitigated by pumping cold water from the bottom of Shasta Dam. Where we fished upstream of Chico, California, temps were just under 53 degrees, whereas river temps about an hour downstream of Chico were a shade under 70 degrees. As we've talked about here before, water in California for farming, drinking, or fish, namely salmon, is a hot topic. You could say it's been on a political warming trend for over a hundred years. Currently, lower Sacramento water temps are high enough to not be hospitable to salmon. When I was there, the folks fishing salmon in the salt water were beating them up pretty good. Additionally, the overall flow of the Sacramento was reduced enough that the city of Sacramento is fighting off salt water in order to maintain its drinking water supply for its residents. High freshwater flows are typically enough to keep the salt water closer to the Bay Area. We pulled plugs for kings on a section of river that looked amazing. Not too many people, clear cold water that appeared to be bank full, at least my untrained eye, There were fish in the system, and we landed three, ultimately. Put two in the box and released a third. We hooked one striper up there. Incidentally, we were told that there should not be striper up there. The next day, we went lower on the river, threw on our wetsuits, and dove for striper. The water clarity wasn't bad, but not as good as higher up in the system. The water wasn't quite as cold either, but only by a couple of degrees, and there was life everywhere. Tons of stripers, suckers, pike minnow, bass, sturgeon, these little perch-looking fish, and even some king salmon moving through. Bumping in the sturgeon underwater is pretty exhilarating, pretty fun. It was truthfully really amazing. I put this trip together to get a closer look at some of the interests regarding hunting and fishing on the Sacramento. If you recall, I went duck hunting for a few days in January with a good friend of mine who is a rice farmer in the area. Now I got to look at the king and striper fisheries, and I'm going to share all of this with you on a future episode of Cal in the Field, the video side of this podcast, sometime soon. Remember, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Maybe I'll come check out what's happening. Where in the world is Cal? Next up, archaeology update. Swan Point, Alaska, which is located on the north end of the Alaska Range in the Tanana Valley, has been a zone of interest in the archaeological community since 1993, but as happens, a group dug a little deeper and found stone tools and mammoth tusk tools dating back to 14,500 years ago. This discovery makes Swan Point the earliest known site for people in Alaska. Previously, the Dry Creek site held proof of early human activity up to about 11,200 years ago. 
Aside from that cachet of earliest or first on record brings, there is a technological side to this discovery. A microblade stone tool was discovered at the Swan Point site, which is very similar to those used and originating from Siberia during that time period, meaning that this tech got to Alaska somehow. The question is, was it by the land bridge, aka Beringia? As we have covered, there are two competing theories as to how humans arrived in North America. The land bridge, or ice bridge, that connected what is now Alaska to Asia, or did early North Americans travel by boat by way of a kelp forest highway between the two continents? 14,000 years ago, a hunter wanting a new hand tool, but tired of that same old design, would have to bump into someone and do some trading. There's only about 2-4 to four million people on the planet at this point, and half the planet is covered in a sheet of ice, but it happened. During the course of that trading, the hard goods would not be the only thing exchanged, but the knowledge of how to reproduce them, like a stone tool sporting a microblade. This process is also trackable, not by barcode, but by tool style, in this case microblade, and material. Certain rocks come from certain places. Over time, these origin points have become identifiable. So far, microblade tools have not been discovered further south in North America, which has led some to believe that this tech was carried by people who walked on the land bridge from Siberia, which is a simple way of putting it. Keep in mind the actual migration probably played out over multiple generations of humans, which were likely following food. It wasn't a scene like uh, somebody woke up one day in Siberia and said, you know what, this landmass that points east, let's all walk across it, see where it goes. No. No, I don't think I will. Moving on to the Crazy Ballot Initiative Desk. And I do mean crazy. Generally speaking, animal rights activists in the United States have been forced to work around the edges. Ban trapping here. Ban bear baiting there. Call it a day. But not in Oregon. Animal rights groups are currently gathering signatures for a ballot initiative that would immediately ban all hunting, fishing, and trapping from Portland to Medford and everywhere in between. Remember when people were content to be unambitious, sleep till 11, just hang out with their friends? I mean, they had no occupations whatsoever, maybe working a couple hours a week at a coffee shop. Right? I thought that died out a long time ago. (laughs) Not in Portland. Portland is a city where young people go to retire. Oregon Initiative Petition 13, what I'll call IP13 from here on out, would remove virtually all legal protections for Oregonians who intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly cause physical injury or death to an animal. You can imagine that doesn't work with hunting. Under current law, people who hunt, raise livestock, manage wild game, or engage in a variety of lawful activities are protected, within reason, from Oregon's animal abuse provisions. Under IP13, those protections go away. If you intentionally harm or kill an animal, you'll be in trouble, no matter what you're doing. And since accidentally hunting and accidentally killing animals and accidentally eating them isn't really a thing, outdoors people will be first on the list of offenders if IP13 secures the necessary 112,000 signatures and is somehow voted in. The only exceptions to this new ban would be those who kill or injure an animal in self-defense and those who engage in, quote, good veterinary practices. 
So unless the black-tailed deer you're stalking is about to bite your head off or you're hoping to give him his yearly flea and tick medication, you won't be able to touch that deer under IP-13. If you thought this couldn't get any weirder, well, you'd be wrong. IP-13 would also uh, expose domestic livestock and horse breeders to animal sexual assault charges. Anyone caught touching the sex organs of an animal for the purpose of animal breeding would be subject to a Class C felony under the proposed initiative. That's, that's ridiculous. I wish I was kidding. You can read it for yourself at yesonip13.org. The ballot initiative is being promoted by an animal rights group called Creatively Enough and Animal Cruelty. They acknowledge on their website that their proposal would significantly impact a wide array of industries and they have a simple response. I don't care! Okay, they don't exactly use those words, but that's what they say. To those concerned that IP-13 would ban hunting and fishing, they point out that, quote, the practice of seeking, pursuing, and in some cases even capturing an animal would still be legally protected. Which is odd, because in every other state currently, that's called harassment of wildlife. To those who worry that banning hunting and fishing would keep people from harvesting their own food, they say that Oregon has ample food, along with the resources needed to distribute that food to every citizen. To those who point out that IP-13 would remove recreational opportunities from nearly one million hunters and anglers in Oregon, they say that the state has countless activities we can engage in for recreation that do not involve taking the life of an animal. And, to those who wonder where conservation funding will come from without hunting and fishing revenues, they say there are a multitude of humane and creative methods for conserving our environment. They don't say what those humane and creative methods are but they're very optimistic about their odds of success. The conservation funding question is one of the primary criticisms of this initiative. The Congressional Sportsman Foundation points out that without the revenue from hunting and fishing license sales, the budget of the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife would be cut nearly in half. IP-13 would remove over $50 million annually from the state agency most responsible for conserving Oregon's plants and animals. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, there's no way this passes. I can see where you're coming from because it's asinine, but you should consider a few things before you write off IP-13 as a lost cause. I spoke with Keeley Hopkins, the Pacific State's assistant manager for the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. She told me that this initiative has a shot at getting on the ballot simply because the bar is so low. And animal cruelty only needs 112,000 signatures before July of next year. If they focus on downtown Portland or Salem or Eugene, Hopkins thinks they can reach that threshold. And listen, as a blanket statement, who doesn't want to end animal cruelty? Animal rights groups in Oregon also have a long history of advancing their agenda via ballot proposals. A measure to ban snare and leg hold traps made it on the ballot in 1980. A measure to ban body gripping traps in 2000. In 1994, Oregonians voted to ban baited bear hunting and cougar hunting with dogs after Measure 18 made it on the ballot. Of the 1.2 million votes cast, the ban was voted through by only 43,000 votes. No one knows what will happen if IP-13 makes it onto the ballot, but let's not sit around to find out. Ballot measures can be successful with some slick marketing and conveniently misrepresented information, so it's important that hunters and anglers nip this one in the bud. The most important thing you can do 
is make sure your friends and family know why they shouldn't sign their name to IP13. Proponents of the initiative will try to downplay its effect on hunters and anglers, the livestock and equine communities, and conservation efforts. It's up to us to make sure the general public knows the true nature of IP13 and decides accordingly. There are also organizations that could use your help spreading the word. The Oregon Chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Oregon Hunters Association, and the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation are all working in Oregon to help stop IP13. If you have a few bucks, throw it in the hat. I'm sure they'd appreciate the support. Whether or not you have anything to contribute, you can still post about IP13 on social media, send an email to your hunting buddies, and get on the phone with your old man. Everyone needs to know why IP13 shouldn't make it on the ballot. Now's the time to get involved. It will be up to you to define what animal cruelty is. Don't leave it as a blanket statement. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on. 
The New Mexico Game Commission recently denied the application of five landowners seeking to designate streams running through their property as quote-unquote non-navigable. According to a 2015 state law, the so-called non-navigable streams are closed to the public, and so this denial is a win for access, at least until the lawsuits start flying again. This issue will be familiar to longtime listeners, but a quick refresher on the timeline here. In 1912, the New Mexico State Constitution was ratified with the language, and I quote, The unappropriated water of every natural stream, perennial or torrential, is hereby declared to belong to the public and to be subject to the appropriation for beneficial use. In 1945, the state Supreme Court defined beneficial use to include fishing, wading, and boating, as they should. So far, things seem pretty clear, right? But then, in 2015, the New Mexico legislature passed a law stating, And again, I quote, No person engaged in any recreational use shall walk or wade onto private property through non-navigable public water unless the private property owner has expressly consented in writing. Under this law, five landowners were able to designate streams through their property non-navigable, which allowed them to post no trespassing signs, put up fences through the waterways, some purportedly with razor wire, and press criminal trespass charges on people who access those waters. You might be thinking, I can understand the landowner's beef here. I wouldn't want all kinds of people walking over my private property just because an arroyo that's dry 11 months a year happens to run through it. Thing is, the 2015 law gave no definition of navigability, and so did nothing to clarify the already complicated water politics in the state that has the least surface water of any in the nation. Further, the streams that have been deemed non-navigable up till now flow all year round and are 100% navigable by raft or canoe. The reason many of these landowners applied to close the streams in the first place was to have the fishing waters there to themselves, and no evidence of navigability was ever presented at those hearings. The previous Game Commission simply approved the applications outright. When those earlier rulings went into effect, we were worried about access for New Mexicans, of course, but also about the precedent this would set in other states. There are landowners all over the country who do not like having people they don't know on what they think of as their turf. So, it's great news that the Game Commission rejected these most recent applicants, but the forces attempting to privatize public water are not done yet. The case is likely to reach the New Mexico Supreme Court before too long. It seems clear that the non-navigable law is unconstitutional, but private property groups have a lot of money, and so it is entirely possible that the law won't be overturned or that they will appeal the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. If the bogus law stands, we will then have to start the long work of electing state legislators in New Mexico who will repeal it. On the heels of this development in New Mexico, a district court judge in Utah just handed down a head-scratcher of a ruling on that state's stream access. Unlike New Mexico, Utah has no guarantee of stream access in its constitution, but state ownership of waterways, customary use of stream beds by the public dating back to before Utah statehood, and even 2008 Supreme Court decision upholding stream access seemed to lock in those rights. But in 2010, a law passed in the Utah legislature barring people from touching the stream bed under a public waterway on private property. 
Public access groups opposing that law argued in court that pre-existing state trespass laws don't prevent people from touching the ground underneath the water. So, waiting and other uses were legal. This recent ruling creates a kind of no-man's land by agreeing that it's not trespassing to touch the stream bed, but, quote, the absence of civil or criminal liability for this public use does not mean that the use also gave rise to a public easement. Translation, they can't put you in jail for wading up the stream, but you don't have a right to be there either. I'm sure that will clear everything right up and lead to no further disputes. What do you think? These laws restricting access in New Mexico and Utah are just further examples of why we need to be involved in government, no matter the administration. When the next law limiting stream access comes up in the next state, we need to be there to defeat it, rather than going through the rigmarole of having it struck down in court or repealed. Every state writes its own laws as to what constitutes stream access and trespass. Here in Montana, we are in a very low water year, and we have a lot of folks out on the ever-expanding gravel bars of Montana rivers. But did you know that Montana's stream access law provides only for water-based recreation? The law is often summed up as below the high water mark, which is technically true, but technically that high water mark access is there for fishing, boating, swimming, and water-oriented activities, So, if you're like me, and like to pull up to a fishing access site purely to walk, that is not technically provided for. But that withstanding, we still have a heck of a lot better access than the poor state of Utah right now. Moving on. The U.S. Forest Service is being sued for not protecting the habitat of the endangered meadow jumping mouse from the cattle grazing in New Mexico's Sacramento Mountains. The suit by the Maricopa Audubon Society and the Center for Biological Diversity claims that, despite the $8.4 million that the Forest Service spent on fencing along the Agua Chiquita Creek and elsewhere, cattle were still able to eat and trample the high grasses, the high grasses that form the habitat of the meadow jumping mouse. The parties filing the suit clearly want the Forest Service to revoke grazing permits in the area, and that issue is only liable to get more contentious as the record-breaking drought continues to punish the West. Here in Montana, for example, conservationists and ranchers are squaring off after the state recently opened additional wildlife management areas to emergency livestock haying and grazing. The conservationists point to the definition of a wildlife management area as a place where wildlife and wildlife habitat conservation is the priority. Ranchers might respond, Our land feeds wildlife all year. Why shouldn't we get some help in tough times? This battle is going to rage on as droughts kind of look like they're becoming a problem. But back to the meadow jumping mouse. I don't know how exactly to balance the needs of ranchers with the needs of an endangered species but I do know that the jumping mouse is truly amazing and deserves its place. With a body length around three inches, a healthy individual can jump just over three feet. The human world record holder for long jump, Mike Powell, hit a distance of 29 feet four and a quarter inches in 1991, and he stands six feet two inches tall. If Powell were able to jump proportionately as far as a meadow field mouse, he would have gone over 62 feet. Paris 2024 is on the horizon. Now, to get back to my college days, 
which consisted of getting severely beaten in PlayStation football by a guy who is now a county attorney here in Montana, we need to prevent defense situation on this type of stuff. We can't wait to address the needs of species, even tiny ones with big hops, until we are in crisis mode. Keeping these animals off the endangered species list, like far off, is what will ultimately keep the grass tall and the cattle fat. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you're in the mood and have the need for a clean, quiet, electric chainsaw just in time for hunting season, check out steeldealers.com and find a knowledgeable, awesome steel dealer near you. They'll get you squared away on what you need. I like to keep mine underneath the back seat of the truck. It doesn't stink and it's ready whenever I need it. And remember, let me know how I'm doing or let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.